So I'm going to start with one of my favorite stories, actually, about Jesus that I think shows this uncanny quality that he seemed to possess to, like, see things that other people didn't see and just call them out as you saw them. You see this happen in this intimate conversation he was having, hanging out with his closest friends. And these guys have been hanging with Jesus for a while now. They've heard his sermons. They've witnessed the miracles. And Jesus likely knows that they, like, have a pulse on what people around them are kind of thinking about what they've been up to. And he also thinks they've probably had a chance by this point to kind of form their own opinions about what this whole deal is. So he asks them to share it. You can follow along uh, with this if you want on one of the blue sheets. Matthew tells the story this way. When Jesus came to the area of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Like, hey guys, what's the buzz, right? What are people saying about me? What's the word on Twitter? Tell me what's going on. What are people, how is this trending? How is it playing? And they answer, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Well, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, you are blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. Literally, he said, you are rock. Peter was the Greek word for rock, Petros. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you release on earth will have been released in heaven. And then he instructed his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. So that's like a great moment, right? Particularly if you're Simon Peter. Jesus just gave you a new name. It's the rock. Like, that's pretty cool. He made pretty clear. You're going to have an important leadership role to play in this thing that he's established. You're stoked. But here's my favorite part of the story. It's actually what comes next. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and experts in the law and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. God forbid, Lord. This must not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, because you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Ouch. I mean, talk about a whiplash kind of experience, right? One moment, Simon is being praised for being like uniquely in tune with the divine. The next moment, Jesus is calling him Satan. What gifts? On display here, we can see this capacity that Jesus seemed to have to see beneath the surface, to name like the truth clearly, to hear something no one else is hearing and call it out. The first thing he sees is positive, right? Peter's declaration of Jesus' identity as God's anointed is speaking real truth. It's in alignment with the Spirit of God. It's spoken with a sincere heart. So Jesus calls that out. He can see that. He praises that. But once Peter, likely maybe with a bit of a puffed up sense of ego, now that it's been stoked a bit, once he thinks he now has something more to offer Jesus in terms of wisdom, 
there's a turn, right? Perhaps Peter thinks he's tapping into that same spirit that revealed the truth of Jesus' identity to him. I think he was totally well-meaning. He thinks it's his job to encourage Jesus. Don't get so down, Jesus. We're going to win this. It's going to be awesome. You're not going to suffer. You're going to be victorious. Those horrible things are going to happen to you. We won't let them. We got you. But in the same way that Jesus could see so clearly the importance of Peter's confession, he could also see beyond the words of encouragement that Peter was offering. He could read the self-interested motives behind those words. And he had enough deep knowledge of the heart of the divine that he could tell that Peter's words were not in alignment with the way of God. They were actually calling him away from what God had for him. And in that way, they were the words of an adversary, an enemy, what the Greek word calls a Satan. What if Jesus hadn't had that clarity of insight? What if he'd just gone along with Peter's encouragement? Yeah, you know what? Maybe you're right. Maybe I'm just being hard on myself. Forget this whole suffering deal. It would have been a different story, right? Probably one we wouldn't be telling 2,000 years later. But what made Jesus unique was his capacity to like tap into a deeper level of reality, to look beyond present emotions or momentary circumstances and orient himself in a greater truth, which seemed to bring clarity to the present circumstances and allowed him to see in the moment what were words his friends spoke to him that were from the divine and what ones were from something else. He had the capacity for discernment. I think it's easy for us to hear these stories and get kind of numb to them, right? To just getting used to the idea that, like, well, Jesus simply had that, like, super ability to tell one thing from another. But I think what's more interesting to think about is what it must have felt like for the very fully human Jesus to actually be going through the process of trying to figure that out of discerning which voices that he heard were God's and which weren't. Sure, he had access to what scripture calls the Holy Spirit, but I imagine he had to wrestle to understand what the Spirit was actually saying. It wasn't effortless. And honestly, I find that idea encouraging because it gives me hope that I too have capacity to tap into a deeper reality and with that reality gain insight into present circumstances in my life. I find it encouraging that Jesus told his followers that he intended to send them the Spirit so that they could do the work of coming to know the mind of God in the same way that he had. When the spirit of truth comes, he told them, the spirit will guide you into all truth. I find that encouraging because I think right now, I need discernment. What do I mean by discernment? I love how the writer and spiritual teacher Henry Nouwen describes it. In a season of reflection he took in a monastery, he discovered a painting 
that deepened his own understanding of what discernment is. And the painting was actually a depiction of the writer Henry David Thoreau. And you may not know this, but Thoreau played the flute. Okay, so here's the picture. This is by Hazard Durfee, is the painter. And now we came upon this painting, and it was paired with this quote from Thoreau, which is perhaps what inspired the painting itself. Why should we be in such desperate haste to succeed? And in such desperate enterprises, if a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music which he hears, however measured or far away. And this led Nowen to a recognition. He says it this way. As I studied the quiet, concentrated face of Durfee's musician, I realized that discernment is like hearing a different drummer. When I reflected on the flute player, I knew myself as restless and searching. I felt I was stumbling over my own compulsions and illusions way too often. During my time at the monastery, I began to understand that when we listen to the spirit, we hear a deeper sound, a different beat. The great movement of the spiritual life is from a deaf, non-hearing life to a life of listening. From a life in which we experience ourselves as separated, isolated, lonely, to a life in which we hear the guiding and healing voice of God who is with us, and will never leave us alone. The many activities in which we're involved, the many concerns that occupy our time, the many sounds that surround us make it hard for us to hear the still small voice through which God's presence and will are made known. So there have been seasons in my life where listening to that different drummer didn't feel so hard. The voice of God felt easy to identify. Times in which... I prayed every time I sensed some word of encouragement, some sense of direction. Sometimes it was like prayers were being answered before I even finished praying them. Truthfully, I think most of these moments occurred in the earliest parts of my faith journey. My years in college, young adulthood, faith was new and young. And perhaps the divine knew I needed a lot of encouragement to make it take hold. But not all of my life has been lived in those seasons. Often, the deeper sound, the different beat, has been a lot harder to hear. At times, I've been able to march forward, nonetheless, with a sense that, like, I know the rhythm. I've been doing this long enough. I know. Even if I don't hear it, I kind of know where the steps are. I understand them. But I'm going to be honest here. Oh, I'm in a season that feels really challenging right now. I think it's one of the hardest seasons I've walked through. Many of you already know at this point that in the most recent months, I've been stretched in a new way, walking through the journey of cancer treatment with my dear sister. And over the holidays, One of my closest friends here in Berkeley was diagnosed with cancer as well. These diagnoses of two women I love and respect deeply. They have my heart. They are companions to my spirit. 
one on top of the other. It's strangely synergistic, leaving me feeling in some moments uniquely connected to something sacred and profound in entering into the suffering and healing of others. And at other times, I have to say I'm just overwhelmed by what feels like just too much for my heart to manage. It's profoundly disorienting. In this season, it feels like there is so much noise. At times, I find myself wondering if I've lost track of the drumbeat altogether. I feel out of rhythm. My steps are all in response to these voices and these horns and these alarm bells that are blaring and ringing and shouting for my attention along with just this mundane cacophony of family needs and activities and iPhone notifications and moment-to-moment breaking news updates. Goodness gracious. In the roar of all of it, I find myself wondering if there's any different drumbeat to listen to at all. And I tell you all this by way of introduction, really, to what we're considering together over our next few Sundays as we begin this new year together, because I'd like to spend these next three Sundays that we're together considering this topic of discernment. It's selfish, truthfully, because we're kind of considering this because I need it, (laughs) honestly. But I have a feeling I'm not alone that many of us have our own versions where we're wondering, particularly in times where we find so much shouting for our attention, how do we tap into that deeper reality that Jesus did so that we can do what he did, separate the fact from the fiction, the truth from the deceit, the voice of the divine from the voice of an enemy. So that's what we're going to be exploring in these Sundays together through this series I'm calling Hearing Through Noise. Hearing through noise. And with what's left of our time this morning, I want to start by considering what I think has to be the foundation place, the starting, the starting block. And that's the title of today's teaching, Turning, Turn Down the Volume. In his letter to the Christians in Rome, the Apostle Paul wrote, Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And there's that word, discern. Paul says we can discern the will of God. The word he's using in Greek is one of two in the New Testament that we often see translated to discern. Okay, this one is dakamazane. Dakamazane. It really means to test something, to scrutinize it, to prove something definitive about its nature, to press into it. That's that word for discernment. The other word that's closely connected and we also see translated as discern is diacresis. That word has more of a connotation of distinguishing one thing from another, dividing one thing from another, making an objective judgment about it. This is this and this is that. It's kind of what we saw Jesus doing in the beginning, right? We see the author of Hebrews use this word to describe a goal for the follower of Jesus. For everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced in the message of righteousness because he's an infant, but solid food 
is for the mature, whose perceptions are trained by practice to discern both good and evil. So there again is this idea. We can discern the intention of the divine. We can tell the difference between one thing and another. We can tap into the will of God as Jesus did. But how does that happen? How do we not conform to the world, as Paul said, but have our mind renewed? How do we graduate from drinking milk to eating solid food? Perhaps as a place to start, it might be helpful to look to like what Jesus did when he was trying to manage this. How did he dial into discernment? In the beginning of Jesus' ministry, one of the first decisions he was faced with was who amongst all these people who were starting to follow him was he going to invest in, particularly, in a, in, a, in a close, intimate way? There were lots of people, at this point probably dozens to hundreds, who want time from him, and he can't give it all. So he has to choose who is going to be in the inner circle. So what does he do? Luke describes it this way. Now, it was during that time that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent all night in prayer to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples, and he chose 12 of them, who he also named apostles, Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, and James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Do you see it? It's so easy to gloss over verse 12 and just skip to 13 and on, right? It's so easy to just focus on, okay, who are the 12? That's what we're interested in, right? But not to focus on how he got there. He spent a whole night alone on a mountain in prayer first. He withdrew from the crowds. He walked away from the city with all of its distractions. He turned from the religious folks who were pressing in on him and pressuring him, as well as the people he was starting to call friends. And he spent a night with his thoughts and the spirit. For discernment to take place, he needed to make space, to hear through the noise. He needed to turn down the volume. Henry Nouwen, again, the spiritual teacher and writer who had defined discernment earlier, as listening to the different drummer, also shares insight he gained in that season that he withdrew to a monastery and learned more about attending to that different drumbeat. He says this, I stepped away from my teaching to slow down for a time in intentional community. It was hard for me to see God at work in my life when I was running from class to class and traveling from place to place. I had so many classes to prepare, lectures to give, articles to finish, people to meet, that I had come quite close to believing myself indispensable. Still, I was frightened of being alone and having an unscheduled day. Even as I longed for solitude and rest, I was full of paradoxes. When we are spiritually deaf, we are not aware that anything important is happening in our lives. We keep running away from the present moment, and we try to create experiences that make our lives worthwhile, so we fill up our time to avoid the emptiness we otherwise would feel. When we're truly listening, we come to know that God is speaking to us, pointing the way, showing the direction. We simply need to learn to keep our ears open. 
many of us think of the late Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, who we're honoring this weekend, as a firebrand preacher and a prayer who could really like stoke people, right? Really stir them up, stir up people's spirits. And that prompted real action with this booming voice, the power of his intense, energetic, brilliant words. And all of that is true. He did that. But what many don't know is that Dr. King also took whole days to himself to be quiet and pray. He called them his days of silence, where he just withdrew and was silent for the day. Philosophers and mystics of many traditions have long asserted that in order to discern our own hearts, and certainly the heart of the divine, we need to turn down the volume. Mahatma Gandhi, Emily Dickinson, St. Teresa of Avila, all of them found meaning in stillness. The 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal wrote, distraction is the only thing that consoles us for our miseries, and yet it is itself the greatest of our miseries. Hmm, that's some food for thought, right? Distraction consoles us from our miseries, and yet it itself is the greatest of our miseries. We need to make space not to be distracted to pull out of the noise. We may not need to spend months or years in a Trappist monastery like Henry Nouwen or even spend a night alone on a mountainside like Jesus, but we do need to find places and ways to withdraw, to slow down, to stop running from the present moment and consider what our moments have given us. As it so happened, this week I listened to two interesting interviews on the NPR podcast, On Being, a show hosted by Krista Tippett. I know there are some fans here um, besides me. And that show explores themes of meaning-making, often spirituality. And both of these interviews, I was not like trying to do sermon research, but both of these interviews were with people who wouldn't consider themselves religious, but they're both very deeply spiritual. And they're both connected in what they spoke about to this, what we're talking about here. So the first was a writer named Pico Iyer, who and has somehow, spent... Oh, almost sorry, immediately. That's his picture, and we'll listen to his quote in a bit. Um, sorry. So, yeah, let me, let me set it up, and then we'll, then we'll listen to the clip. Okay. So Pico Iyer has spent his career as a travel writer, as well as an essayist, an author who speaks about meaning, and has built much of his adult life around what he calls the urgency of slowing down urgency of slowing down. Ayer grew up traveling the globe at an early age, even flying by himself as a young child overseas to attend boarding school. And after getting his education, he continued to travel the world, seeing lots of amazing things, always on the move. By his mid-30s, on one airline alone, he'd racked up more than a million miles. But he was also beginning to sense that though there was a lot of movement in his life, there wasn't a lot of stillness. And around that time, his house in California was completely destroyed in a fire. And so he lost every possession he had, and you know, he was particularly footloose, as he said. And um, so in the wake of that experience, a friend of his recommended that maybe he visit a Benedictine hermitage 
that was powerful for experiencing calm and clarity. And you know, he's not Catholic, he's not Benedictine, but he thought, if I can get some calm there, I don't have a house to be at anyway, I might as well give it a shot. And we're going to listen to a little bit of how he told Krista Tippett what his experience was once he got to that monastery for the first time, the Benedictine hermitage at a Benedictine monastery. And somehow, almost immediately, it was as if a huge heaviness fell away from me and the lens cap came off my eyes. And Mm. suddenly I was seeing everything with great immediacy and it was almost as if, you know, little Pico had disappeared and the whole world had come in to me instead. And I remember a, a blue jay suddenly alighted on the fence outside my window and I watched it wrapped as if it was the most miraculous thing that had happened. And then bells began ringing above and it felt like they were ringing Uh, inside me. And then when darkness fell, I just walked along the monastery road under the stars, watching the taillights of cars disappear around the headlands to the south. And really, almost instantaneously, I felt, I've stepped into a richer, deeper life, a real life, Mm -hmm. um, that I'd half forgotten had existed. And one thing I noticed was, when I was driving up, like many of us, I was conducting all kinds of conversations or arguments in my head, and I was feeling guilty about leaving my mother behind, and I was worried that my bosses wouldn't be able to find me for three days. And as soon as I arrived in the place, I realized that none of that mattered, and that really, by being here, I would have so much more to offer my mother and my friends and my bosses. That's lovely, right? That experience changed Pico. Fundamentally, Some of us have experiences like that, and then we forget them, right? We kind of move on. But he began to build into his life different practices, devoted practices of stillness. He returns to the hermitage every year for a few days, for over 24 years now, I think, he's been going. He calls it his secret home a place where his heart finds sanctuary so that wherever he is in the world, whatever's going on, whatever chaos he finds himself in, it's like his mind still knows that place and he can go there. He can, like, find grounding, being there in his mind and knowing that it exists in real life and that he can go there in his body again when he needs to. He's intentionally made choices to not to slow down his uh, you know how he does work how he what devices he has in his home all of those things in order to introduce more and more stillness and space for reflection in his life. The second on being interview I listened to this week was with a spiritual sage that many of us have been pondering and honoring over the last few days because she passed on Thursday, the profound poet Mary Oliver. Much of Oliver's work is about the sacredness she finds in the natural world and the way she allows herself to be absorbed by what she sees. One of her most famous poems is The Summer Day. One section I find particularly relevant for this conversation goes like this. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention. How many of us can say that? 
can we pay attention, really? Can we notice the details, really? Attend to the world around us, to the people we spend our moments with. Attend, as Mary Oliver would have us do, with feeling. She says, attention without feeling is just reporting. It's just a report. Are we offering just a report of what's going on? Or are we experiencing our life with empathy, with feeling? Are we paying attention with feeling? Can we attend to our own feelings, our own fears, our own realizations? Can we attend to God? Elsewhere, Mary Oliver said this, and to me it sums it all up. Attention is the beginning of devotion. Attention is the beginning of devotion. Perhaps this is the starting place for cultivating discernment. Simply making a consistent practice of finding a quiet space to pay attention. To attend to our feelings. To notice our questions. To pay attention to our doubts and our insecurities and invite the Spirit to bring insight and clarity and wisdom as we pay attention. I know it's not a novel suggestion to slow down, to practice quiet contemplation. It might feel a bit cliche. But I do think it's a suggestion that many of us, and I'm speaking for myself here, particularly maybe those of us who are extroverted, we need to be reminded of and encouraged to commit to again and again in different seasons of our lives. And perhaps to use that quiet time in ways that we haven't before. So the last couple of weeks, I have come to moments of quiet and I haven't, I haven't known how to start, right? Again, there's been so much that feels so loud in my heart, so unsettled. It's like, I don't know what to pray. I don't know what insight to look for. I don't even know how to hear anything right now. My heart is too unsettled. And yet I found in these last few times of silence I've observed, particularly maybe inspired by Pico Iyer and Mary Oliver, I've decided to just use my prayer time not to say anything profound to God or to list some set of things that are on my heart, but just simply to try to sift through what's here, what's going on, with no judgment about it. It's simply a time to, like, lay it on the table, right? So I've been turning on the lights, maybe, lighting a candle. It helps kind of center me. Sit without needing anything particular to happen. Inviting the divine to be present with me, but I'm kind of going in accepting that I may or may not sense presence. And I just sit and consider What am I feeling afraid of right now? What am I worried about? What am I hopeful for? What's confusing me? What's boring me? What am I grieving? Where am I finding comfort? 
And with each of these questions, I'm not trying to reach some conclusion. I'm not trying to make meaning of it. I'm just trying to notice what seems to be there, to pay attention to my own heart. And as I do, I've also begun to sense that maybe something beyond me is paying attention to it too. So that's my invitation for all of us over the next couple weeks. Here's my challenge to you. How and where can you set aside some time for that simple, quiet contemplation? Could you make a goal? Ten minutes a day? Could you give up ten minutes for the next week, for the next two weeks, until we come together again? Could we try it? Could we kind of keep each other accountable that we're going to try it and then we're going to talk about it in a couple weeks, see how we're doing? And this is completely optional. It's an invitation. If it's five minutes, if it's ten minutes every other day, whatever feels right for you. Where can you make space? If you want it to be an hour, great. That's awesome. But uh, we'll start simple. Is there space on your lunch break? Can you get up ten minutes earlier in the morning? You can choose. You can sit still. You can go for a walk. There's someplace uh, beautiful in nature that, that prompts your attention. That could, be, that could be nice. I recommend turning off all devices, trying to make room to get away from distraction. And here's what I would invite you to do, and I gave you some steps here. And then we're actually going to practice this. We won't do a full 10 minutes, but we'll do a little bit together. But these are the steps. It's kind of what I described, but with a little, more, uh, a little bit more prompting here. First, I'd invite you to begin by imagining the divine in whatever form is helpful for you to feel safe and connected in God's presence. So do you see the warm eyes and bristly whiskers of a Jewish rabbi named Jesus? Do you perceive a soft, dark-skinned mother with long, flowing hair? Is God a gentle father with a soft smile and strong arms to fall into? Or do you connect with the divine as breath, as wind, a spirit that takes no particular form but flows through your very being? Whatever connects with you, imagine that in your mind's eye and invite that manifestation of divinity to be present with you And simply notice alongside you whatever is going on in your mind and heart. And you're going to invite them to bear witness to what you are paying attention to. And then you just see what questions and thoughts come to mind. What is drawn to your attention? What feelings arise? What questions feel important? What are you afraid of? What are you moved by? What are you distracted by? Don't judge any of it. Just let it be. Notice it. Acknowledge it. And if you like, you could grab a piece of paper, or if you're a journaler, if you have a journal, take a few notes. You don't have to write down everything that comes to mind. Maybe in this 10 minutes, one to three things that you notice. One to three things that you identify, that you're paying attention to, that come forward. And then invite the divine 
to be present with you in whatever those things are, to see them with you, to feel them with you, to hold them with you. That's the practice I'm inviting you to try this week. We're going to start by trying it for a moment today, okay? So before that, I'll just give us this. As a good Jewish boy, Jesus grew up praying the ancient Psalms. Perhaps it was in them, in their commitment to paying attention to the terrain of life and the terrain of the heart that Jesus learned his own practice of seeking solitude for discernment. Perhaps he was stirred by the words of the psalmist that have called to many through the ages who have found themselves feeling the urgency of slowing down. Be still and know that I am God. Amen.